The river, slow, noiseless, and dark, the Schwarzwasser of Casterbridge, ran beneath a low cliff, the two together forming a defense which had rendered walls and artificial earthworks on this side unnecessary. Here were ruins of a Franciscan priory, and a mill attached to the same, the water of which roared down a back hatch like the voice of desolation. Above the cliff and behind the river rose a pile of buildings, and in the front of the pile a square mass cut into the sky. It was like a pedestal lacking its statue. This missing feature without which the design remained incomplete was, in truth, the corpse of a man. For the square mass formed the base of the gallows, the extensive buildings at the back being the country jail. In the meadow where Henchard now walked, the mob were wont to gather whenever an execution took place, and there to the tune of the roaring weir they stood and watched the spectacle. The exaggeration which darkness imparted to the glooms of this region impressed Henchard more than he'd expected. The lugubrious harmony of the spot with his domestic situation was too perfect for him. Impatient of effects, scenes, and adumbrations, it reduced his heart-burning to melancholy. For the sufferings of that night, engendered by his bitter disappointment, he might well have been pitied. He was like one who had half-fainted and could neither recover nor complete the swoon. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Picha. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad, as always, to have you with us. Just a little bit of business before we get started. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at The Readers K. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can shoot us an email, TheReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. We always love hearing from Listeners getting feedback, getting questions, um, and that sort of thing. So you can reach out to us that way. We're here in the middle of our middle March season, almost right in the middle, just a little bit past the middle, I suppose. And we are finishing up this time around our second set of cycles based off of middle March. So you'll go back and, and listen to the, the previous two episodes of this cycle if you haven't done that yet. The first one, Carl's pick was, was Kate Chopin's The Awakening, and then last week, was my pick, uh, Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Now we're rolling into the third part of our cycle, which is The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. This is Friedrich's pick, and in just a minute, I'm going to throw it over to him and ask him to uh, tell us a little bit about why he chose it. But first, as always, I'm going to give you a plot summary. Best I can. This book gets <laughs> wild, Good my luck. It is, it is pretty crazy. I'm going to try to give you the main points without too much unnecessary detail we can get into some of some things as we go along the mayor of casterbridge is the story of a man named michael henshard and at the beginning of the book it starts with this really interesting kind of set piece and the first couple of chapters take place about 20 years in the past relative to the rest of the book in the beginning of the book michael henshard is a young man 
relatively newly married with with a wife and a young daughter and he is a, a lowly hay trusser and he's wandering around the countryside looking for work and they come to a place where there's a fair going on and michael who's very unhappy with his lot in life gets a little bit drunk and gets a little bit angry and in a sort of fit of this anger and drunkenness he sells his wife and his daughter to a passing sailor at a, basically an auction he immediately regrets this in the morning and sobers up and, and swears to live his life the right way he goes and looks for them he can't find them and so he finally gives up and then the rest of the book takes place about 20 years in the future michael's made good on his promises he's become a successful grain merchant he is, in fact, the titular mayor of the town of Casterbridge, and he's really made good on his life in a lot of ways. One day, though, his wife, who has had a successful sort of faux marriage to this sailor for about 20 years, comes into town with his grown daughter in tow and uh, is looking for him. Her husband, she thinks, has died, and she wants to, to reconcile with Michael. Michael immediately recognizes, I have to do this. I have to make right what I once put wrong. The problem for him, though, is that he has recently been engaged in some less than maybe appropriate relations with a young woman in another town whose name is Lucetta. He's promised that he will marry her if he can. Um, all of a sudden, he's relieved of that promise. He marries or, or remarries, really, or his former wife and um, takes his daughter under his wing. But she does not know that he is her father. She thinks that she is the daughter of this sailor. So things are going along well for a while. Then his wife dies. And in the book's maybe big bombshell, he finds out that this girl who he thought was his daughter, who he wanted to adopt and make fully his own, right after he's told her that she is his daughter, he discovers, wait a minute, it's not actually his daughter. His you daughter died. You are not the father. Michael, you, you are not the father. <laughs> you are not the father. And in fact, this is the daughter of this other man. And But he's now stuck in this situation. Meanwhile, there's a young man who's shown up in town, Donald Farfrey, who's a Scottish man. And he's, alongside of all this, he's sort of helped Henshard revitalize his grain business. But even though Henshard at first looks on him as a sort of son and maybe a good match for his daughter, he very quickly sours on him. He thinks that Farfrey is out to get him to take over his business. Meanwhile, Lucetta shows back up. She wants to make good on this promise that Henchard had made her, but then she falls in love with Farfrey, and so Farfrey ends up basically stealing Henchard's woman, stealing his business, and everything's going terribly. He becomes destitute. He takes back to the bottle after 20 years sober, and his life starts going wrong, and the rest of the book is about how he maybe can or can't pick up the pieces along the way. We build towards a sort of tragic climax in some ways uh, that we can talk a little bit more about as we get in but that's, those are the basics it's a story of a man who makes a tragic mistake in his life and who spends the rest of his life trying to make up for it but can never fully do that i'm going to throw it over to friedrich to just talk a little bit about thomas hardy and why he picked this book especially in relation to middlemarch and what we might think about getting out of it and then we can begin to tear it apart a little bit after that yeah thanks for that great summary soren it's a novel that's full of incident, as they would say in the time, right? And there is so much even beyond what you said that happens that it's not even worth going into the nitty gritty and narrating all of it, but we can we can speak about it as it comes up. You know, it was written as a serialized novel, and so that's part of why it's it has so much incident in it. I think I, I chose it because it, as I was rereading Middlemarch, 
I was kept thinking of this in relation to Bulstrode about a, like a story about a man of stature in a community who has a past and whose past comes to not only be his downfall, but to haunt the people in his life and more pessimistically in Hardy than in Elliot to be his fatal downfall. But I think that the connection between Hardy and Elliot is explicit in a lot of ways in literary history. I think if you Google Thomas Hardy somewhere in his Wikipedia page, it probably says, oh, he writes in the style of George Eliot, which I don't know if he writes in the style of George Eliot, but he's influenced by her realism, certainly. But he's also sometimes imagined as sort of the, the end of the 19th century and the end of Victorian sentiment, morality, whatever. And so I wanted to look at a, a quick passage from the literary critic Philip Davis's history of Victorian literature in which he's explicitly comparing Eliot and Hardy and talking about Hardy as a sort of possible endpoint of this literary period. And I'm going to point to two different things. The first to do with Eliot. Davis writes, Always in her work, George Eliot was fighting the coming shadow of Thomas Hardy, of all that he stood for in terrible answers to vital questions, even before it finally loomed. It is the attempted but anticlimactic finale of Middlemarch, and the way that novel cannot have a real ending in its commitment to continuance that Hardy is challenging at the apocalyptic close of his own works. And I'd be curious to see what you think of that uh, idea of his apocalyptic endings in these highly elusive biblical Greek tragedy novels of his, particularly this one. But then in another moment, I wanted to uh, point out just something he says about Hardy. It is Hardy's shuddering adult thought that even our escapes are part of our imprisonment. No human being can fully bear a felt consciousness of the human situation, and yet no human being can forever evade it. I think we're getting into a sort of fadedness of some of his novels, including this one, and how the past, unlike in, or maybe just in a different way than in Eliot's, clings to these characters and becomes something that's stranger and more violent and nastier, and his endings tend to be nastier as well, and to ask the two of you, because this is a novel filled with these twists and turns of people's fates and our expectations about what might be happening as we learn something about another character are suddenly turned on a pivot because Hardy reveals another piece of information or doesn't. I was wondering what you made of that claim of Davis's that in Hardy, we're always trying to escape our imprisonment of ourselves and being unable to. As a first time, uh, Hardy boy traveler with, uh, (laughs) with Hardy. Two young whippersnappers with a knack for solving mysteries. Yeah, more used to the Hardy Boys than Thomas Hardy. There are a lot of really interesting things that this book prefigures to me, especially as like this node that's somewhere at the end of Victorian and the beginning of the modern, um, as Hardy is often called into both literary time frames, literary modes. Just that quote you read about our imprisonments and of our ability to look at consciousness directly right it reminds me of like somebody like um hp lovecraft the most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate all of its contents i think it's something like that is the beginning of call of cthulhu right and this idea of like a menacing aspect to fate or just menace makes me think of like the plays of harold pinter in certain ways the way that Henchard just cannot 
turn towards the good in any full or lasting way. And yeah, you talked about the sort of episodic nature and that this was a serialized written book and you the cliffhanger becomes a moment of total reversal of fortunes for the worse for Henchard in at the end of almost every chapter. As Soren was showing us, right? Like there are all these reversals, but it seems like there are, you know, 45 of them or whatever, one for every chapter where something is going a certain way and then a drunken man sells his wife or somebody dies only to reveal that through a letter that exists posthumously, another reversal of fortunes for the worse happens. And and there are a few times where like that chiasmus locution is used in the book. He could not have what he needed, nor did he need what he had. Something like that kind of keeps coming up. And you, you really get that topsy-turviness as a kind of like metaphysical condition to how the events are playing out throughout the whole book that really grabbed me and i yeah i saw prefiguring of like pinter lovecraft conrad certainly that like deep negativity and pessimism about fate so it's really interesting to think of all of those things in this kind of late victorian mode i think that's a really good that davis quote is a very good expression of a lot of what's going on in hardy the fact that characters really want to escape from who they are for hardy you know certainly class plays a big element in that and the limitedness of a sort of parochial life outside of the the urban centers even though that brings with it advantages it's also difficult for characters who have ambitions to be something better than where they start out in life what i really liked about this book this is the first time i'd read this particular hardy um and i liked a little bit more in this book versus some of the other books like jude the obscure or return of the native is that henchard is very self self-consciously unlikable as a character (laughs) and he feels that and he tries to struggle against it jude and jude the obscure in some ways feels like like king lear he's a man more sinned against than sinning right Mm -hmm. he's like this tragic figure because he tries his best to get out of this and he just can't because everything's dragging him down right and there's more like self-pity in it Henshard is always a, is a man who's always aware of his flaws, his impulsiveness, his inability to control his temper, the way in which people come and go in his favor. And he's aware of it, and he's, he's always trying to make things right, and then he just makes them worse. And I find that very compelling as a character, that he is someone who's struggling against this past and this series of mistakes and he just enmeshes himself further and further in the net it does remind me maybe this is something about like late victorianism or something but it reminds me a little bit of of another great late 19th century book very late um lord jim which maybe someday we'll talk about on the cast by joseph conrad in the way in which it explores how like one mistake in a person's life can come back and just Mm -hmm. be with them forever and never let them out of its grasp but at the same time you do see here that it is Henchard's original sin of selling his wife that keeps coming back to haunt him. But it's also just who he is. He cannot escape from his own impulsiveness. And he can't stop just hurting himself and those around him in the way that he behaves. It's almost like a compulsion to lash out at other people instead of letting them help him. And so I really find that compelling as a character study, as a study of a man who in many ways, is a great man. He's ambitious. He's he's can be magnanimous and generous. And then at the same time, has this sort of 
wound in his side that won't heal and can't be removed in terms of who he is and how that just keeps coming back to haunt him again and again. Yeah, I love I love what you're saying about the difference between this and some of his other Hardy's other novels because there is that sense in like Return of the Native that Egdon Heath is this type of place that it just constricts people in it and you can't get out of it. Or for Jude, his social conditions will never permit him to fully rise to the status that he strives for. But Henchard, he has this sin in his past and like in Lord Jim, it's pursuing him in some way. But unlike in Lord Jim, as Soren's pointing out, he's continuing to make decisions based on that, that that further damn him, and he kind of knows it. So, for instance, there's that part with, uh, it's really illustrative of his character, when the sailor, Newson, who married his, well, well who bought his wife uh, 20 years hence, returns and was thought dead, and returns to see if his daughter's still living. His daughter is still living, but he doesn't know that. And when Newson shows up, he asks Henchard, is my daughter alive? And Henchard instinctively lies. And then Hardy kind of sits there and describes how he knows that he instinctively lied, but he just like can't help it. It's like who he is. And that happens a few times in confrontations with Farfrae, the Scotsman, that he makes these impulsive decisions that drive him further downward. And I like this novel as a, a counterpoint to some of his other novels about being trapped because it's like, being trapped in what Gerard Manley Hopkins would would say is your sweating self. You can't escape your own, just like your own personality, even if you know that what you're doing is despicable. It's more inward in a lot of ways, in a weird way, uh, than some of those other pessimistic, hardy novels. But what both of you are saying makes me think of this subtitle, Life and Death of a Man of Character. And I just think that that is, this is a really great example of a book that is, character driven as they say in the publishing industry these days but not a book we read to like the main character some way but it also kind of goes beyond these questions of like you know is he redeemable or something and we get more interestingly subtle with respect to like what is it about character that sort of defines a person and defines how they look at the world and how that can be their outcomes can be so very different based on the slightest, you know, circumstance, slightest change in circumstance. We see so much of that um, throughout the book, this one little thing this way and who Henchard goes to first or sees first determines this kind of the next outcome. I thought it was really impressively told that way, how each chapter kind of spins towards a different negative outcome that I had thought a lot of the time. There's something there in the, in what you're saying, Carl, about how the narrative almost mirrors the impulsivity of Henchard himself, where we're always moving. Like you said before, like it seems like every chapter we're getting some new piece of bad, unpredictable news for Henchard that really mirrors the way that he makes decisions in his life. And this can be good and bad. So he, Farfrae, when he first meets him, is like, oh, I'm going to go to America and make my fortune. And he says, like, stay with me. You'll be my son, basically. I'm going to give you everything. And it's like he decides this in a moment, in a flash. He knows Farfrae is going to be my friend and I'm going to really bond with him. And there's that impulsivity that changes both of their lives forever in just a flash, in a moment. And then at the same time, it's like that impulsivity that drives him to his his downfall in many different ways. And I'm thinking in particular economically 
he gets involved in a scheme. Basically, he's trying to ruin Farfrae after they've had their falling out. And so he goes to like a soothsayer to try to tell the future about what the harvest is going to be like and beat the prices on the harvest. And the soothsayer tells him one thing, so he, he does all this stuff. He, make, he makes all these purchases, and it's like going to ruin him because it looks like the harvest is actually going to be really good, and he thought it was going to be really bad. And so then he like sells everything again to try to make back what little he can. And then it turns out, oh, the harvest actually is really bad. So if you'd waited like an extra day or two, you would be in a fine position now. You wouldn't be ruined. But it's that he can't contain himself. He's so bustling and full of energy, which is mm. how he rose to from a, being a hay trusser up to being a successful grain merchant in the first place. But then that restless energy just never stops. And so he can't help but rashly rush into a new situation and then immediately regret it afterwards and i think there's something to the way that hardy's telling this book it feels like a series of fits and starts and so you never really know what like what in the world is going to happen next like what there's a bull who's attacking people and like <laughs> henchard has to come save the day from the bull right like like what there's like all this new stuff and there's all this weird he thinks he sees a ghost of himself in the river yeah right like all these weird Things. all these weird moments that it just feel like a little bit a narrative almost at the edge of being out of control which i think makes it really exciting in some ways to, to read through the prognosis of the grain or whatever what we were just talking about it seems like a, a lot of moments like this in the book happen where it's almost like a parable for kind of not just Henchard's like character or greek tragic failings in some ways but that one that you just brought up reminds it just feels very like true to like how anxiety works today for so many people right especially with their their jobs or different prospects for like big life decisions um it seems based on you know how the winds have changed one day to reverse course but you really just can't know can you what's going to happen whether or not the perfect position is ultimately going to come up at your work and you should have just stuck it out there or if you should have played the risk and gone to a different place um, and seen if that would have been better um, maybe that would have been terrible and hardy by giving us like always the worst outcome is really siding with the person who has a lot of anxiety and is just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time and it is a bit of a pessimistic outlook on life but it's not necessarily like a defeatist one it's just a way of saying like better to expect that the grass is always greener feeling will come to you sooner than later so i liked that aspect of of henchard's character and what happens to him when that compounds and compounds um, is kind of an interesting thing that the novel plays out i'm wondering how you all read this there's a sort of basic axis of alignment in the book or two two axes of alignment and on one is henchard and lucetta who are both the, these very impulsive characters, Lucetta, like she's, she knows like, I'm supposed to marry Henchard now. Like I got this all planned out. And then she meets Farfrae and instantly she's like, I got to marry this guy now. Like I got to make this work. There's this access of Henchard and Lucetta. And then there's the other access, which is Elizabeth Jane, who is Henchard's daughter, not daughter and Farfrae, who are both much more even keeled as characters, much more risk averse, much more cautious. And at the same time, like in some ways, better able to deal with the, the faults of other people. He, he kind of interestingly explores these different alignments of the, the four characters throughout the book. So it, near the beginning, obviously, Henchard and Lucetta seem like they're supposed to 
they're going to get together. And it seems at the beginning that Farfrae is, is very interested in Elizabeth Jane and maybe marrying her. And so they start to come together. And then everything gets thrown off kilter because Lucetta and Farfrae meet kind of by accident. And then because of that, they make this alliance. And that alliance itself then ends up making Henshard and Elizabeth Jane more closely drawn together, at least in some ways. And then, and this is not a spoiler, I think, but Lucetta ends up dying and um, Farfrae then at, by the end of the book has married Elizabeth Jane. And so we have this realignment where the sort of even keeled characters have found each other and then the uneven keeled characters have both died. I don't think that's that's too much of a spoiler. And so I wonder what you make of the, like, is he, is is Hardy ultimately advocating for some sort of like quiet life of mediation or is he just sort of showing us like here's the path not taken by Henshard but maybe it's kind of dull in the end like Elizabeth Jane and Farfrae are both a little bit dull as characters especially Elizabeth Jane who's like super good all of the time and and so I wonder what where he's coming down in that and what he's getting at by giving us these different combinations of characters to to, to kind of play around with in our minds the way I thought of the axes was like reactive versus proactive and so the slightly duller but nevertheless reactive characters have that sort of Taoist yin feeling to them. You know, just let the things happen around you and better to be the, the reed that sways with the wind than the tree that snaps in the storm. That kind of mentality, right? Um, I feel like there's something to that kind of worldview happening in, in the end, right? Where it does seem like uh, we should give some pity to Henchard, right, for his sort of boldness or something in his character maybe but um it's not a fate that you would want for yourself when we get in the final lines his like uh his will and testament which is that he be forgotten and not married and not talked about and and like not touched just <laughs> extremely pessimistic thoughts on himself there i mean having read hardy's other books and this is again what soren said he appreciated about this book so it's making me appreciate it that if you're reading some of the other books, you come down on the side of like, well, it's these are characters facing hard fates and like a cruel universe in which we're all like animals evolving to survive against other animals. And, and how can you strive after like religious or philosophical meaning in your life if you're just this thinking animal? And in this, I do, I feel like it is different though, that there is a little bit of like, it's an emphasis on as sort of saying impulsivity versus a sort of equipoise or planning. And I feel like maybe a part way answer to your question is that there's still a focus on like the coincidence of things being a huge driver in people's lives of what they end up doing. Like you said, with the shifts in who um, Lucetta is going to marry, who Farfrae marries, and then it marries someone else, right? Um, that there are these moments of just something happens. And that letter that, person showing up who you lie to like has these immense consequences or the working class people in your neighborhood who think your life is kind of a joke make fun of you and it drives you to a hysterical death like some some <laughs> other force acts in your life and even for someone like Farfrae who's who has a really preternatural like sense of how the the grain crop is going to come in and and he has a good sense of numbers like he's even enthralled to chance in a lot of ways like this novel feels more Chance is at it is at issue. Does that feel or in play? I mean, Ch does chance that feel right to you. Chance versus fate, maybe as opposed to fate, at, even as opposed yeah. to fate. Yeah, I think that's true. There's something of the 
this like relentless drive of fate in some of the other Hardy novels yeah. that, that you're right. I think doesn't feel like it's, it's at play here. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. That it's more chance oriented than it is fate oriented. These other characters just cannot escape. They're trying to escape and they cannot do it. Life's just kicking them right in the balls all over and over again. And here it's like these little moments where you could go one direction or the other. And yes, Henchard's always choosing the wrong direction to go, yeah. but that's because of ultimately because of who he is and not because of circumstances themselves. And so there's a little bit more of a fork in the road quality to it. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. When you're talking about those little moments, that reminds me of um, Far Frey. Um, there's this great moment where he says, and his friends call him the Frey. Where did I go wrong? I lost a friend somewhere along in the bitterness. I should have stayed up with you all night had I known how to save a life. Let it be stricken from the record. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sorry. I just had, you were just getting so close to it. I had to, had to say it. I'm sorry. I took us down the wrong path there. Can I look at this question? This is sort of a question of connection to Middlemarch as well, but also a way of thinking about, Carl, I thought you brought up a really good point a minute ago where you were talking about Henchard's last wish is just to be forgotten. And in some ways, this is a book about the legacy that a person leaves in their life. To approach that somewhat obliquely, there's a really interesting sort of far-flung connection to Middlemarch we, and we keep coming back to this for some reason in our cast, sorry, but it's the fact that Casterbridge is built on a Roman town, and this comes up again and again. Hardy keeps drawing our attention to, like, they're walking past what used to be the amphitheater, or like, here's an old Roman bridge that everybody's been on. And there's that sense of history, like, rising up out of the ground, almost to swallow the town up in some ways. Like in Middlemarch, to some extent, part of what's going on is we're being reminded that these are very little lives, ultimately, but there is still some sort of impact in terms of the legacy we leave. And, and, and I, I get that as well, because there are points where he, he brings up, this had been going on forever. Yeah, like 200 years. And it's like sort of a joke against this backdrop of this thousands, you know, millennia old town that's been there. And so he's sort of playing with us in some ways about what matters in terms of what we leave behind us. But at the same time, he really takes that seriously. Henshard wants to be somebody who leaves behind him a good legacy for his town and, and for the people he loves. And yet he keeps sacrificing what little he has left in terms of that legacy because he can't stop playing at chance, right? And so, so I wonder what you all think about the prominence of the sort of Roman backdrop here and also what this book thinks about what it means to kind of to leave a legacy behind you. I love that you brought up this connection. The Rome passages in Middlemarch do keep coming back up and we've talked about like the wreckage of history stuff and there's something even to like Larkin's church going in this moments when they go to the mm -hmm. ring that like even though no one cares about these Roman games for you know bread and circuses type stuff that was going on here that ancient mound and ring like contains some meaning that they still have to go there to meet mm. and talk about things because that's where the important conversations happen and some, something like that but i i like that they pointed out because there's also a stark i think contrast between elliot's point of view on history and as carl pointed out we're sort of you both pointed to this out we're sort of getting toward conrad here who in heart of darkness begins with the idea of 
the Roman colonization of Britain and we were colonized many years ago, that there's this past in Britain that's mysterious and unknowable in a way that for Eliot doesn't feel true. Like when Eliot begins her great Renaissance novel, Romola, she brings us back to the past with this ghostly spirit who goes into the streets of Florence and recognizes some similarities. And though the language has changed, recognizes that the people sort of share some qualities with the people of the 19th century. And that's only a span of, you know, 300-ish years, not a thousand years. But in this instance, when they go to the ring, Hardy's writing about how people are always digging up skeletons in their yards, skeletons of Roman soldiers. And they're like, oh, great, another dead Roman. I have to clear out of my yard if I'm going to build something. (laughs) And he says of the skeletons, they had lived so long ago. Their time was so unlike the present. Their hopes and motives were so widely removed from ours that between them and the living, there seemed to stretch a gulf too wide for even a spirit to pass. And I think that's a difference between Eliot and him, that for Hardy, this past is obscure to the point of unknowability, and it doesn't inform the present in the way it does for Eliot. It's not like the grand human history that we all share in. It's episodes that become completely mysterious to people who didn't live as they were unfolding. And I feel like Henchard's life is in some way modeling that, that once he's gone and his record is gone, like all of this incident will mean what and to whom it's very pessimistic. And I think it's a big difference between the two novelists. But I think what you're drawing us to, I I like that. I think it is a certain kind of foundation for both, but um, for Hardy, it's the foundation of, this past that you must uh, dig up, but it is a nuisance, you right? But it's there, and you can't help but you are at some point going to be forced to acknowledge the fact that it is there, and that's kind of what Henchard becomes in the future for these other characters who survive him. This kind of gruesome past that was unfortunate and could have, you know, if it weren't for certain circumstances and certain tragic aspects of his character would have come to a better outcome but nevertheless it was kind of almost unavoidable that this would be how it would end up and then yeah so there's kind of something really gives you a bit of vertigo thinking about how that history is in itself you in Henchard who just says well forget me that is my legacy best that I and my woes that I've brought to so many people be forgotten and perhaps hardy is saying just like the roman empire right i mean i think hardy's point of view might also be like and this is maybe not fair to hardy i don't know is is maybe like he would say to henshard yeah don't worry buddy you will be forgotten like you're all gonna be forgotten that's what's gonna happen to all of us like it's it's pretty pessimistic in my view but i don't know soren what do you think yeah no and and i'm glad you brought us to this key contrast, both of you, um, in the way that they're using Rome, it strikes me that Eliot, the, the, the place matters because in Middlemarch, we get Rome in Rome. And as you mm-hmm. kind of brought us to, to Romulo, which takes place in the Renaissance in Florence, we're like, we're in that time period. We're there. And so there's a sense of like, history's alive. It's all around us. Right. And when you, mm-hmm. you go to Rome, it really is. It's like right there. Right. You can't escape the pastness. But here in Hardy, it's the colonies of Britain. It's these things that have faded away and lost their meaning. And so I, I love that you brought us, Friedrich, to, to the Larkin poem 
church going, which of course contains the great line, like what remains when disbelief has gone. And it's this sense of like, not even knowing what to do with a church building. Like, what does this even mean? Like, it's, it's not even like, Oh, I I'm in this church and I don't believe in God anymore. It's like, what the hell is this thing going to be? Is it like a parking lot? <laughs> right. And there's something to that in, in Dave paradise in and put up a I was just going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. How is it okay when you make that? Oh. <laughs> Joni Mitchell's okay. And the phrase Joni Mitchell's not. Okay in the fr- no. What are we even doing? There's that one. That's that, that wonderful element. It also makes me think a little bit of, of Seamus Heaney's bog poems where like they're, pe- they're pulling the people up out of the bog. Ooh, and that's a great reference. Absolutely mummified. And like, what is going on here? What is this? What connection does this have to us as people? Mm-hmm. Is this really unclear sense of what the past is there for? And I think that's true for Hardy. Like we can't make of the past anything because these people have just disappeared into the mists of history and, and we can't make sense of our lives based on that. And the same thing is going to be true for people 100 years from now. They're not going to be able to look at our lives and make anything of them. It's just, right, just gone. And maybe just another general statement about that, too, and a difference between Middlemarch and this is that if you look at Elliot's body of work, you could say that she's the type of person who's buying into the idea that the long arc of human history bends towards justice or something, right, that there's a good outcome and we're progressing as human beings. And I think that, Soren, you're maybe on, I agree with you that for Hardy it's, Another episode in human history in which everyone's confused and no one's progressing, maybe technology is, but in these parochial novels of dying ways of life, we're not at the end of an advance and moving toward a future that's going to be better. We're just in another episode of dismal (laughs) outcomes. I don't know. Yeah. And even like the local culture has, has sort of like decayed. And, And so we've got to talk a little bit about this. This is one of the weirder episodes in the book. The thing that leads up to Lucetta's death is yeah. that people have discovered there's this malicious character in town who doesn't like her, and he discovers that she used to have this thing with Henchard. And we're never really sure what exactly happened between them, but it's the sense that it's scandalous, whatever it is. And we're far afraid to learn about it. That he would be devastated, and he wouldn't want to be married to her anymore. So she's trying desperately to disguise this. And this knowledge gets into the hands of like the local no good nicks down in like the bad end of town and they decide we're going to put on this thing called a skimmington which is like them marching through town with these effigies of henchard and lucetta and basically being like look at these two they're they're like lovers this public shaming that they try to pull on lucetta which puts her into a panic she she's pregnant she like sort of miscarries and then dies or, or you know dies and then you know simultaneously with the miscarriage but it's this this sort of tragic event in the book, but it's also this weird scene of comedy. And like, they go back, they're trying to figure out if they've, if these people were responsible. Cause it's like this one pub they all hang out in. That's really shady. And everybody's like, no, we're just, they're like hiding things everywhere. They're hiding stuff in the oven. And like, it's kind of a comic scene, but it also is like pointing to no one really understands what the point of this is anymore, but they're still doing it because it's the thing they do. It's like the skimmington. We got to do this. We got to shame people, but it doesn't have the same force as it used to. And we have a sort of echo of that, a very sad one, um, and this is kind of tied into your point about the land as well, is that we get repeated check-ins with the fair that we start out in, right? We start at the fair 20 years before, and it's this bustling, lively place, and the woman who's running the tent where he sells his wife, Hendred sells his wife, is like this 
wonderful entrepreneur woman. And then we meet her several times throughout and she's just gone down in life. And likewise, the fair itself like barely exists anymore. People have just moved on. They have a new way of doing things. Um, it's an agricultural fair, so they're selling stock and things like that. But it's just gone away by the end of the book. And there's a sense of like the vanishing of these traditions such that, but there's still appendages of them there that are no longer useful, like prehensile mm. tales or something, right? <laughs> that are just left there with no discernible purpose, but they're still there and being utilized. And there's something to that in the way that I think Hardy views the past. It's like human culture tries to make meaning out of these things, but we've lost what the original meaning may have been. And so what we're left with is just the remnants of it. And we keep doing it, even though it doesn't actually mean anything to us anymore. Davis in his history of the Victorians also gets at something Sorens brings us to and says that it is sort of following Nietzsche that Hardy does what Eliot couldn't do and lets go of all of that Christian morality as well as the Christian belief, whereas Eliot was halfway holding on to the, the morality, letting go of the belief. And I feel like that's, you know, in a weird way, it's something that's happening here too. There's a practices continue, but for Hardy, all of the reason behind them has gone. And for his narratorial self, Actually, I don't know what I'm saying here. I kind of forgot my. I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. Like like Friedrich's unintended fragment there. This reminds me of another Eliot. Fragments I have shored against my ruin. There's a sense in which um, Hardy's take is like T.S. Eliot's take. You know, in the modern, we are left with rituals that we have to do our best with if we if we want to be moderns and make meaning actively make it in the ritual for ourselves somewhere and somehow as best we can. But I do, I, I would side with parts of what both of you are saying there, which is that that um, seems like a task that is almost fated for a kind of oblivion or total failure, certainly for Henchard. I want to take us to another point in that Skimmington, Skimmington ride, whatever, that after Lucetta has been horrified by what's going on and the revelations another one of the many revelations of this novel and is dead that henchard goes out for like a walk in this river low lowland area and doesn't know that it's the skimmington that's done any of this and so it doesn't really understand that there's an effigy of him out there and sees as carl alluded to earlier this like sort of ghost of himself in the stream and Hardy writes, in the circular current imparted by the central flow, the form was brought forward till it passed under his eyes, and then he perceived with a sense of horror that it was himself. Not a man somewhat resembling him, but one in all respects his counterpart, his actual double, was floating as if dead in ten hatches whole. And then he kind of gets over it and, re and, and later learns that it was the effigy of himself, but I feel like that's a a crucial moment after a few downward movements from Henchard back to alcohol, away from his daughter, away from Lucetta, etc., away from his business, in a way to face himself in a weird, like, psychological horror moment where he sees his doppelganger floating in the river and has to face that. I feel like in addition to, to what we've been saying about history and your place in it and these episodes of of sort of confusion for human beings. We go, we're going back to what we started the episode talking about that there's 
this revulsion at your own decisions and at your own personhood and who you are in the world. And it's not even necessarily to do with his decisions. It's just like he sees himself and it's horrible. It's corpse-like and he's repulsed. There's a sense of the uncanny that's running through this book in some ways, even though in a lot of ways it feels less supernaturally tinged than some of Hardy's other books, that there is a sense of the uncanny and that's absolutely a key moment in it. I also think about all the time that characters spend looking through windows at other characters and in particular, Mm -hmm. so there's a strangeness that that like Henchard loses his business and he has to move out of his house and it just so happens that the people who move into his house are um, Lucetta and Farfrae. There's like not that many nice houses in town so you gotta take advantage of it when you can get it and so he ends up like working for Farfrae for a time as like just a stable, you know, a hand in the in the the fields or whatever and there's this sense of uncanniness that happens where he's like looking in at them and periodically he'll even visit them in the house and it's a sense of almost like haunting that's going through the book and looking being able to kind of look at your everything you've lost and what might have been in your life that's just evaporated from you and so i think that that's that's a really fascinating series of points in the book where we get this Henchard kind of looking at himself in a mirror image or through like a window into the past of what he had or what might have been in the future and that he's lost and so I think there's a nice sense of hauntedness about that about being able to simultaneously see what's really there which you don't like and then also see like what might have been there that you that you have have lost a hold of. Yeah, and as Friedrich was saying, right, this is also like the Roman past of England, right, or the the sense of one's historical self in two hundred years. It is it is kind of a direct view onto that in this sort of secular time of one thing just after another. This is what your life and its meaning looks like in two hundred years. Just a sort of downward facing corpse in a flowing through a river right and there is that revulsion at the not just the corpse like look of it but a kind of what Sartre means by nausea at like the lack of meaning that's inherent in that self according to this worldview so i think that that duality and that uncanniness poses another interesting question about perhaps another double which is you know who is the mayor of casterbridge it is Henchard, right, for most of the book, but maybe after the book ends, just as how after many of the characters end, there is a twist. The final twist that Hardy turns for us is to make us ask who, in fact, is the mayor of Casterbridge after all? Is it Farfrae? And then is there some kind of uncanny or doppelganger doubling going on between them? And especially with this question that we've that we've been bringing up about one's meaning throughout history but better to be a forgotten piece of floatsome in the drift of time or to be donald farfrae who is a man who reacts rather than is proactive in my formulation but then ends with a bit of happiness and a bit of meaning in the historical record i think that's a great point i want to say too that there's an interesting detail that's physical if you're talking about these two doppelgangers of one another one of whom is obviously the superior as far as how the outcome of the novel shows it but that 
Henchard is so physicalized, as we've talked about. Like he's this big guy, has to tie one arm behind his back to fight Farfrae in a fair fight, and he still beats him. And uh, he's always sort of, in addition to being impulsive, is sort of that guy who uh, in the small town is boisterous and always wrapping his arms around your neck and stuff. And despite all that physicality, he doesn't have what Farfrae has, which is this sort of scotch ability to wow everyone with dance. Yeah. And he whirls on the dance floor and he draws everyone to himself yeah. with that movement, the poetry of, of in motion of his body. And when the sailor Newson, who bought his wife, shows up, he outdoes even Farfrae on the dance floor. That there's this, as far as their embodiedness goes, there's like the violence and the strength of Henchard, but there's something about those two men that's just purely in the moment, like a moment of beauty of their dance that outdoes whatever strivings for power either of these guys has. That makes me think immediately of a wonderful maxim of uh, Marcus Aurelius, which is that the art of living is more like the wrestler's art than the dancer's art, right? So for Aurelius, it's like you have to meet things head on. You have to grapple with them instead of trying to, to gracefully leap over them or something like that but then here you're absolutely right it's like almost the anti-Aurelius where it's like you have to have that flexibility that movement because not everything can be tackled head-on some things require that litheness that ability to move around and Henchard just wants to bull rush everything in his life I think that's a really good point Friedrich I like that a lot can I take us just to end to sort of wrap these things up the book ends in a very strange way i think and and in some ways it's very emblematic of hardy we've been talking about history about legacy about what's left to us and i made the claim earlier you know that obviously farfrae and elizabeth jane survived this book unlike henchard and lucetta and so in some ways the book seems to be suggesting that they have a better grasp of the art of living but then hardy takes us to this very strange place that i think ultimately points to what both of you were saying earlier which is that all of this is just sort of ethereal it's going to disappear right in a moment these dramas that loom so large in our lives are ultimately just meaningless this is where hardy ends us he takes us with elizabeth jane sort of briefly through the rest of her life and so he says her position was indeed to a marked degree one that in the common phrase afforded much to be thankful for that she was not demonstratively thankful was no fault of hers her experience had been of a kind to teach her rightly or wrongly that the doubtful honor of a brief transmit through a sorry world hardly called for effusiveness, even when the path was suddenly irradiated at some halfway point by daybeams rich as hers. But her strong sense that neither she nor any human being deserved less than was given did not blind her to the fact that there were others receiving less who had deserved much more. In the very final line, in being forced to class herself among the fortunate, she did not cease to wonder at the persistence of the unforeseen. When the one to whom such unbroken tranquility had been accorded in the adult stage was she whose youth had seemed to teach that happiness was but the occasional episode in a general drama of pain. And that's just the end of the book. Is like, yes, she had a very nice adulthood but she never lost the lesson of her youth which is that life is pain not even the happy ending can be a happy ending because everything is meaningless around you and like these moments of joy and sunbeams are just 
going to be blotted out by the clouds of non-existence and pain. It's a very Hardy-esque ending, even when we get to the end and there's some of the characters are successful in their endeavors. Ultimately, they're unsuccessful because guess what? They're going to die and be forgotten. And I like that as a, as a sort of wrapping up place. That's why you have to give yourself fully over to the dance in the moment. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up uh, for now. Stay tuned after this, though, because we do have another exciting episode of Postmodern Food Factory headed your way in just a minute. But for now, just a a few items of closing business. So this ends our second section, Lonely Women in Your Area, where we've been talking about relationships and women. We're heading into this last section, which we're calling uh, Beyond Realism, to think about the way that Middlemarch's realism maybe resonates in some unlikely places. And the first place we're going is Carl's last pick of the season, which is Michelle Cliff's No Telephone to Heaven, a sort of classic of post-colonial literature. We're excited to, to talk about that next time. Uh, and you can join us then. Until then, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Welcome to Postmodern Food Factory. Welcome to another episode of Postmodern Food Factory. We're glad to have you back with us in the the bowels of the night here as we try another new and exciting and disgusting probably food this one comes to us courtesy of friedrich now that both carl and i have made a pick on postmodern food factory is friedrich's turn and he found us this delectable bit of like local culinary masterpieces this is i'm going to read the title to you it's from a company called happy apples uh, but it is a red hot riplets caramel apple Caramel dipped apple plus red hot dusted peanuts. Friedrich and or Carl, you either of you can do this and you can jump in. Do you want to tell those of those people who have not been blessed with the knowledge what red hot riplets is? We all have a connection to St. Louis in some way, and it, red hot riplets are available at every every good St. Louis food outlet, whether it's a your local corner gas station or the biggest grocery store in town. And red hot riplets are a ridged chip that has a hot dust coating it. For some reason, they've really taken off, and you can now buy, like, red hot riplets seasoning by itself. I think you can get red hot riplets at some pizza joints, like, on the pizza. They're just, they're just in things. And so when I saw these apples, I thought, oh, we got to try this, because I thought they were dusted or dipped in crushed-up chips. Sadly, they they were a little more conservative, and they dipped them in peanuts that are flavored with the red hot riplets flavoring but that flavoring alone should be enough to make this quite interesting and to say the least i am a little bit disappointed that they're not covered in potato chips because that would Mm -hmm. be that would be next level but (laughs) i'm i'm excited to try this i have not had red hot riplets in quite some time but i'm i'm looking forward to this i might actually eat this this whole thing i don't know we'll have to see i'm pro are you pro caramel apple in general well, I have mixed feelings. Like I like the idea of caramel apples maybe more than the reality of caramel apples. 
like caramel and apples together is quite delicious as a combo but then like eating the actual caramel apple is like kind of a pain (laughs) oh i agree with that in fact that's why i I will cut mine and eat a slice is that what you are doing on air caramel and cannot be associated with wrench my teeth through a disgustingly waxed caramel apple on a stick (laughs) through the dusted peanuts on top of that too potentially break a tooth okay i have not yet opened this but from the top there's a little tiny hole here this appears to be a granny smith at least on mine Ooh. what do you make of that is that a good is a granny smith an appropriate caramel apple flavor it seems a little sour to me I for agree caramel apple sour it's my uh, apple of choice for caramel apples really this is the sour and the sweet like balance mm-hmm. each other Okay. As long as it's not a red delicious, I'll be okay. Um, I'm now opening my red hot replaced caramel apple. Here, take a listen. Carl has already sliced his like the dandy he is. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're eating ours off sticks like a couple of uh, I don't know, podunk farmers down at the Fermity tent at the fair in Castor. Down Ridge. in Castor. Exactly. Yeah. Clearly, yeah, Carl, Carl, get- Carl is the farfray of this group. Yeah. <laughs> right i am scottish okay. a little so to I me it a, smells i got a huge chunk of uh like like caramel apples ripple yeah. on mine there's nice. not a lot to all say right. about the smell it smells peanutty it doesn't smell particularly red hot ripley yet to me but maybe that'll change as i bite into it yeah i agree I think it I'm is to be it. fair like coated in these things a nice healthy layer here yeah, yours has kind a of nice looks orange like, glow. Yeah, it looks like one of those <laughs> cheese balls that you get at like a potluck dinner, right? Where it's like the cheap, the weird cheap processed cheese food, and then like the nuts sticking out of it. That's what it reminds me of. I hate those things, but yeah. you hate cheese balls. I hate cheese balls. They're so bad. Oh, ugh! I can't do like the processed cheese food stuff. Sorry. It's okay. All right. More for Are we me. doing this. We doing this. Yep. All right, should we go Bob's for it? two guys with a stick and one with a slice? Are you okay? <laughs> Listeners, Soren officially broke something. Proof that he should have taken my route. Juice is dripping down his chin, and apple chunks are falling out of his mouth. He might have just vomited on his microphone. The only thing that broke was my brain. <laughs> it couldn't. It couldn't handle it. It's that it bad. No, it was just so. It was like a fight or flight mechanism. Was like, <laughs> what are you putting in my mouth? I will agree that my brain does think it's like two snacks. I've just combined it in like different <laughs> sides of my mouth, even though I haven't. Ooh, I think I am mm. going to throw up. <laughs> it does have, I hope this doesn't make you throw up, but it does have that quality of puke where it's like the wet of the apple and then the hot of the, the Red Hot Ripple's heat is just like a plain old hot. There's not a lot of flavor in it. Uh-huh. No, and it's it's not the it's not that it's hot. It's that it makes your mouth feel like that acid throw up feel. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like the after throw up. Like right. The, right. Yep. 
That is. Yeah. You know, second bite's not really reflux on a stick, baby. Second bite's better. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that is weird. It is a complete mind. <laughs> it's <F>. so weird. <laughs> Ooh. Too many. Oh, man. It's not. <sighs> I don't think it's terrible, but it just. It's melting the circuit boards here. <laughs> That's Soren. That was the best reaction I've ever seen of you eating anything. Mm. I don't know, man. Mm. This combo is just not working. It's really weird. It's better when you get more apple in the bite. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, the problem is, like, to me, it doesn't feel quite combined enough because mm-hmm. all I'm getting is the peanut. And then I finally yeah. break through to the apple. Because the caramel's not... There's not enough caramel. Not enough it's just caramel like a glue. It's, like, mm-hmm. it's not yeah. flavorful enough, maybe. Right. I'm going to try just the caramel. Hold on. Okay. If I can. Yeah. There's a little part at the top if you take the stick out, maybe. Yeah. Where you can get just the caramel. Oh, well, look bad. at you abandoning your stick. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, even then, it's just not very... The caramel itself is not very flavorful. I feel like if you had a slightly stronger caramel, yeah, it would do a little bit better. Oh, that is weird. I am appreciating the burn, though. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think I'm done after that third bite. I'm, I'm going to do one. I'm going to do my third to, to join you in solidarity. Oh, I'm on, like, bite five. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine's expired, too. Oh. Or past the sell-by date, at least. Another bad one. Here's a question for you. A philosophical question. How do caramel apples last so long? Like the apple part of it. (laughs) Because apples don't? Because mine, listeners, full disclosure here, Friedrich had to ship this to me um, in the mail. So it's been what? Uh, I mean, I've had it for a couple of days now. I've been a good while since it was put in this package. But the, the the apple itself is of perfectly fine quality. There's no meal on it or any bruises. I mean, I can't see very well, but it tastes like a normal, fine, ripe apple. How's my that feeling? Happen? Is my feeling is that it's a sort of a Jurassic Park situation. The caramel is acting as an amber that hardens around the apple and preserves it. And later we can come in and extract its DNA. Oh, I, I thought that you meant that it was part apple, part dino DNA. <laughs> now, now you're getting in into... order to preserve yeah. it. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum delicious. <laughs> well... Mm. I don't know what to rate this, but I'm going on a on, on a um on an agricultural fair <laughs> foods list. We're gonna leave aside firmity for now. Oh. Um if the lowest is like what would the lowest food be at a fair? I don't know. And the highest is what? Like a fried Oreo? <laughs> this yeah. is like this is like a, you know. I don't know. Soggy fries, maybe, or something. Like, I'm not going to not eat it. 
<laughs> I'd agree. It's like a questionably burnt corn dog, you know? Like, <laughs> I'll take it if I'm hungry, you know? <laughs> I'm just trying to think of other local St. Louis things. And if the lowest of the low is Provel cheese, <laughs> then what's the highest of the high? I don't know. A nice toasted ravioli? Mm, probably. This is somewhere, for me, it's somewhere in the middle. I don't hate it. I'd rather just eat a straight up bag of red hot riplets. Mm, um, so would I. Get, rip, get ripped on the riplets. But, or a straight up caramel apple. Here's a question for you. Caramel apple or candied apple? Um, what is the difference? Are you 106 years old? <laughs> Seriously, what? What is, is that? A, is that some some strange North you Western? Have a cube you take Werther's originals. Egg. You take Werther's originals. You boil them down, <laughs> and then you d- dump your apples into it. Wait 46 days, and then eat one. That's how you make a candied apple. What is a candied apple? A, ca- a candied apple has a candy coating, um, as opposed to a caramel coating, like, like a, a Mars bar, like, a, on like an a apple? red. Like you dip it in like a red sugar concoction that hardens around it, like a sucker or something, a lollipop, like a, or like a dilly bar. No, Ooh, not dilly, a dilly bar. bar. <laughs> dilly bar is coated n- in chocolate or butterscotch. I have I want, no idea what you're talking end, about. I want to be coated in dilly bar coating, and then when I go out. <laughs> <laughs> the birds will have a delicious treat for them. <laughs> mm. I do not want to be covered in caramel and then <laughs> rolled in red hot riplet dusted peanuts. I'll say that much. Oh, well, we've reached the end again, friends. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, another mostly successful edition of Postmodern Food Factory. We'll catch you next time.